morning. A long time ago, long time ago, I got a new job. And on my first day of this job, I was sitting with my boss. And he looks at me and says, Greg, I trust you. I implicitly trust you. I trust you with everything. I trust you with the code to my garage door. Trust you with my online banking password. Okay. Trust you with the lives of my children. I also trust you alone in a hotel room with my wife. And I was just like, what is this job again? Like, <laughs> am I taking your family across the Oregon Trail? Like, what's happening? Why, did you, why do you need to trust me that much? But he looks right at me and says, but if you ever do anything to break that trust, I'll never trust you again. It's over. Once you break the trust, you'll never have it back. I don't know who I worked for, like Harrison Ford or something. <laughs> now, is that how trust works? Where we just start out with like, th right out of the gate, really high trust, right? Like, I trust you implicitly. Right, like you, you know, we've been talking about connection groups. Let's say you go to a connection group after this and it's your very first night. And like, what's your name? Craig. Oh, tell us about yourself. Here's the worst thing I did in high school. Like, whoa. Like, no, like that's not how trust works. We, we don't let people have influence over us if trust is low. I don't make the rules. Like, we don't let people have influence over us if trust is low. Now, they may influence our behavior. We might be compliant you know, you don't have to have a ton of trust in the city of Columbia to put your trash on the curb without a bin. Just put a bag on the ground, right? That is so weird. All right, I just, I got to get this off my chest. Like, why? Like, why can't we just, we have the bin. Okay. Right? I just don't get that. I don't really trust the city of Columbia's wisdom on that, but I'm compliant. I just, every week, because I want trash out of my house. So you don't have to trust someone to be compliant. And the reason for that is because behavior, so the behavior, like right, just putting a trash bag on the ground, behavior flows out of character, and character flows out of our identity. And we'll let people touch our behavior, right? Think about authority figures. How much do you trust your boss? How much do you trust maybe just people in your life, like your roommate? You let your roommate affect your behavior. But we don't let people touch this, our identity, without trust. All right, like I don't make the rules, right? We don't let people touch our identity if trust is low. We started last week a series on the Gospel of John. And some people ask me, like, what is a gospel? And what's, what's the Gospel of John? Like, why are we doing this? The Gospel of John is a theological biography of Jesus in which Jesus is trying to build trust. The Gospel of John is a theological biography. Both of those words are very important. The Gospel of John is a theological biography, and the reason it's 21 chapters long instead of three is because Jesus is working very hard to build trust, to say, you can trust me with everything. This morning, we're going to be looking at a central theme in 
the Gospel of John that we cannot understand unless we get this. It's in the background of the Gospel, and it's everywhere. And what I want to do is push it into the foreground and help us see how central this theme is. And here's what I think the Gospel of John is all about. I believe the Gospel of John is an invitation to enter into a spiritual marriage with Jesus. I believe the Gospel of John is an invitation to pledge Jesus your fidelity. To pledge your fidelity to Jesus. All right? And we don't do that without, I mean, we do do it without trust all the time, but that's not what Jesus is inviting us into, is to, to build trust so we can get to a place where we, where we enter into that relationship, where we just say, okay, you have my allegiance. Here I am. Where do I get that? It's really important that we understand the Gospels are not biographies like we have biographies today. So I am a biography junkie. I love starting biographies. I've started like hundreds of biographies. I don't really finish them. But if you start biography, if you think of any of like the really huge biographies of like the past 10 years, whether that's like Walter Isaacson, Steve Jobs, uh, Titan about Rockefeller, or you think about Robert Caro and his LBJ biographies, right? How do all biographies start? There's like a formula. We don't start talking about the person. We start talking about their parents. And then when you get totally bored with their parents, then you talk about like the, you know, the, the place they grew up. And like, here's what you got to understand about the hill country of Texas. If you don't understand this about the hill country of Texas, you're never going to understand LBJ. And like, so you read chapters upon chapters about the soil level and the rain and this, and you're like, whoa. All right? That's not how biographies worked in the first century. Biographies in the first century are biographies, but they're theological biographies. It's a really important word. John is not trying to take a snapshot of Jesus and just describe it. He's painting a portrait of Jesus. And this is why a lot of us get mixed up when it comes to the Gospels and differences in the Gospels. Like, for example, in John's Gospel, uh, right out of the gate, there's the, the temple, the cleansing of the temple that happens in John chapter 2, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Do you know when that happens in the other three Gospels? At the very end. Like, uh, what? Huh? If you, if you change details of the story, don't you change the story? Like, oh, what's happening here? And you know, the temptation of Jesus in, in Matthew's gospel, it goes in one order. It goes first temptation, second temptation, third temptation. In Luke's gospel, it goes first temptation, third temptation, second temptation. And you're like, ah, I don't know what to do. If you're really struggling with that, or you have questions about that, or curiosities about that, we're hosting an event near the end of March called What About Gospel Contradictions? We're going to look at all those. So the end of March, we'll give you more details as it gets closer. But for now, the Gospels are the, the theological biography about Jesus and their spin. The Gospel writers are trying to say, here, we're highlighting this about Jesus. John's Gospel is arranged in such a way the Gospel of John, where it starts with a wedding. There's the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. And it ends with Jesus sitting on a beach with Peter, asking him, do you love me? It's, an in, it's bookended, starting with a wedding, and ending with a question of, well, do you love me? Then follow me. And this book is a marriage proposal. And if we're sticking with that analogy, the first date is the wedding at Cana, 
where Jesus is working to both build trust and to woo his disciples. He's saying, here's what life is like. You know, Amy and I, when we first got married, a, a woman lived with us, and she was single, and she would go on all these dates. And I remember a firefighter took her on a date, and it was like crazy. Like he had a trailer with dirt bikes in it, and he took it up to the mountains, and they took the dirt bikes out, and then they, they like had a chef that came out, and they had like, uh, in the back of the trailer, it was all decorated and decked out, and they had like a date in the mountains, in the back of a trailer, then they rode dirt bikes, and they ended on the beach. And it's like, holy cow, what's the second date going to be like, right? Probably really lame, right? Like, how do you... Jesus has a first date, wedding at Cana, and it's like, whoa, who is this person? And the reason John is 21 chapters long is because trust takes time. Jesus is saying, here's who I am. Will you pledge me your fidelity? Will you marry me? We enter into this type of relationship. And they're like, heck yes, this is great. And then a lot of life happens in those chapters. And Jesus is with them navigating, building trust. And the book ends with a question, will you trust Jesus? Will you enter into this relationship? Will you give him your fidelity? John, you're like, I've never heard that before. Well, it's because John uses the word believe 96 times in this book. And when we hear the word believe, we're thinking like Soren Kierkegaard, like leap of faith, right? That Soren Kierkegaard is where a lot of church theologians thinks we got off track a little bit. Like believe means I know the facts and I trust those facts to be true. It's like Indiana Jones. And I think this is movie three in the trilogy of five. Uh, the Last Crusade. Uh, Indiana Jones, there's a scene where they're going to get like the sacred goblet and he comes to like this chasm and there's an invisible bridge and the only way he can walk across that invisible bridge is to take a leap of faith, right? And we're like, that's what it means to believe in Jesus. Shut your brain off. Don't worry about the facts. Didn't Jesus say a wicked generation seeks a sign? Don't worry about that. Just trust. Ah! Okay? That is not at all what John means when he uses the word believe 96 times. And we're going to see that in John chapter 2. The reformers, uh, the Protestant reformers of like the 15th, 16th century, they got into this debate. When the Bible says the just shall live by faith, does that mean the just shall live by faith? Like, okay, we believe these facts. Or does it mean the just shall live by faithfulness? Do you hear the difference? The just shall live by, okay, we got the facts, we trust the facts, or hey, we're going we're gonna to give our fidelity, our allegiance. Last week, and if you missed last week, the, we have a podcast, but like, I really, I'm not going to re-explain it. It was a lot. We talked about how the Apocrypha, uh, that, that book that scares people, that's in between the Testaments, how that really does inform um, our understanding of the Gospel of John. If you're like, I have a lot of questions about that. I'm not here to answer those this morning. Go back and listen last week. But some details in the Apocrypha and some historical understandings has helped us see that like, when John is describing this wedding at Cana, he's not just giving us facts. He's trying to say, hey, there was a literal wedding that really took place, but God was communicating something far deeper with that wedding. It's an invitation 
for Jesus to be a groom and his disciples to be a bride. And just like a wedding ends with, and do you take this person? That's how John chapter 2 ends. And the question is, do you take Jesus? So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Not John chapter 1, John chapter 2. John chapter 2. John 2. John 2. All right, when you find it, please stand. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. That phrase, invited to the wedding, is going to become important later. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman. Now, I just have to say something real quick. Don't hear that through the lens of, like, you know, Kentucky Holler, 1970s, woman. All right? Like, hey, geez, Jesus, take a breath. It's not disrespectful, okay? Uh, like, every Greek lexicographer says, like, it was actually a term of endearment. So if that trips you up, you're like, geez, Jesus is so rude. Let's just, here we go, ready? Dearly loved mother, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out of it and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everybody brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. God, we don't want to believe in you like the demons believe. God, we want to come to a place where we're wrestling about what it looks like to trust, to enter into this marriage. God, I pray wherever we are that the next step, we would be confident to know that you are there building trust for us. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. It was the late 80s, and there was infighting among evangelicals. On one side of the issue was the free grace camp. On the other side of the issue was the lordship salvation camp. I didn't come up with the names. They named themselves, okay? The free grace camp said, how does a person become a Christian? You just believe in Jesus. 
Nothing else. The phrase they would use a lot is Jesus just needs to be your Savior. You just believe in Jesus as your Savior, that's it. You believe in Jesus, period. Nothing else. Anything else is works. What was their proof for this? John's gospel. God so loved the world that he gave. And John, somewhere in between 9 and chapter 10, uh, they asked Jesus, hey, what are the works we need to do? And he said, here's the work you need to do. Believe in the one who sent me. What are the works? Believe. So what, do, what does it mean to be a Christian? You just believe. That's it. Period. The other camp reacted to this camp and said, no, 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 no. Have you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke? There's a lot of phrases in Matthew, Mark, and Luke like this. If anyone wants to be my disciple... He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone doesn't denounce his family, he's not worthy to be my disciple. You can't just make Jesus your Savior. You need to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. And thus, evangelicalism got split. And there were really good people on both sides. I actually have a relic of this age. Uh, I have, a, I have the only study Bible that is signed by the leader of both of those movements. They used to be friends, then they started not liking each other. And I, uh, I was in upstate New York, and I met the leader of the Free Grace Movement. I said, hey, will you sign my, my, my Bible that's by that other guy? And he was like, I've never done this, and I won't ever do it. And I lied. I said, don't worry. I won't tell him. He said, all right. And he signed it. I didn't think it was a lie. But then a couple years later, I'm in California with the leader of the Lordship Salvation Movement. I said, hey, check this out. The free grace guy signed my Bible. Will you sign it too? He's like, oh my gosh, yes. And I have the only that I know of study Bible signed by both of these people. Look at me. I'm bringing people together. How great is this? The problem though with both, and it's a relic that no one else cares about but me. But the problem with both of these movements, I think they were both well-intended. I think, I think on the free grace side, you had people like, look, it's a real problem. People, how they, how they relate to God. They're afraid and they're fearful. And if you say, like, try, 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 that's, like, really going to overwhelm people. So just divorce that. Just say, believe, and the stuff will come afterward. And the other side, again, well-intentioned, was like, look, the Bible just says this, so we're just going to say that. The problem, though, as I see it, again, and I'm not trying to, like, pontificate or, like, uh, this is part of it, that's part of it, I have all of it. I'm not trying to say that. I don't resonate, though, with either side of these, this argument. I think if we're keeping in like the, the marriage image that John's gospel lays out, uh, this side wants all the benefits with none of the commitments. And in marriage, you call that a gold digger. Now, I ain't saying she's a gold digger. It's a, I know, it still feels weird. I know. This side over here, though, the lordship side, unintentionally or not, became like, imagine the night before your wedding... The night before your wedding, someone pulls you aside and says, hey, my old boss apparently, hey, <laughs> do you like your mother-in-law? Yeah, she's fine. Well, in two years, she's going to get dementia. She's going to move in with you in your tiny little apartment. How do you know that? Don't worry about it. You know what else is going to happen? Your spouse is going to work a lot, and they're going to come home at the end of the night, and they're not going to be interested in you at all, at all. You're going to be so boring to them. You know what else is going to happen? You're going to be broke all the time. They're going to have kids. They're going to be even more broke. Do you want to get married still? You're like, you think so? That's this camp, right? Following Jesus is really hard. It's going to cost you everything you have. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to be persecuted to the nth degree. You still want to follow Jesus? 
unintentionally, this side, and again, like, for real, this is a real conversation I had with a leader in this movement. Uh, not the leader, a leader in this movement. They told me, this is a real, uh, I, real, real words exchange moment. This person says to me, we're going to be in heaven with Adolf Hitler. I said, say what? Yes. When Hitler was young, he made a confession of faith. He believed in Jesus. So we'll see him in heaven. I'm like, uh, probably not. You know, probably not. And this other side over here, lots of friends of mine, myself included, it was like, I'm not doing enough to be committed to Jesus. I've got to do more. Am I really committed? Is he really my Lord? I've got to really, really grind this out. That's why I don't resonate with either side because they're missing a really central focus in what it means to follow Jesus. Without love, we see little transformation. This side over here misses the love. It all benefits no love. I don't know of many human relationships that are really like that. Where it's like, hey, I just, I just have all the benefits and none of the commitment. Those are not relations. Those are transactions, not relationships. And over here of just like, you better be all in all the time or you're 100% out. That's fear. Without love, we see little transformation. Jesus is asking for our allegiance. He's saying, hey, we're going to enter into a spiritual marriage. And we don't know where this road might lead. It might lead to suffering. It might be great. Right? But will you marry me? Will you be with me? And 21 chapters later, we get to the resolution of that. But we start at a wedding in Cana. Jesus understands, right? To, for Jesus to say, will you marry me? You might be saying, like, I don't want to get stuck in another loveless marriage. All right? What's this question really all about? Will you marry me? Look with me back in your Bibles to John chapter 1. On the third day, you might be asking, third day from what? We'll get there. A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples also had been invited to that wedding. In verse 2 where it says Jesus and his disciples had been invited to that wedding, if you have a Bible, does anyone's translation say another word other than invited? We all have the NIV. What is it? I heard it. I heard it whispered. Called? Does anyone's version say called? Yes, that does. Great. I see that hand in the back. I'm just kidding. No. Other translations use the word call. It's because the Greek word kaleo, can, it can mean call, summon, or invite. When we hear, oh, someone got invited to a wedding. Isn't that nice? Like they RSVP, they went to the not.com and said, two, please. That's not what it means in the first century to be called to a wedding. Remember how the Apocrypha shapes our understanding of the gospel in many ways? The book of Tobit in chapter 7, it's an apocryphal book, has an, an almost identical sentence when Tobias gets married. So Tobias is the groom. And his wife were called, were summoned to a wedding, and their mother was there as well. It's almost an identical sentence. And uh, New Testament scholar Kirk McGregor talks about we have found other sentences like this that are invitations to a wedding where the bride and the groom are summoned, and that goes out on the official documentation. So in John chapter 2, when it says, Jesus and his disciples had been called to the wedding. Jesus is standing in the place of the groom 
and his disciples are standing in the place of the bride. It's saying, Jesus called to the wedding as the groom, disciples as the bride. Now, am I saying that this wasn't a literal wedding where people literally got married in Cana? No. If you have questions about that, again, we're hosting an event in the end of March called What About Gospel Contradictions? All right? So you're like, wait, come to that with those questions. There was a real wedding, but what John is doing is saying something else is happening at this wedding. I'm trying to communicate to you what's going on with this gospel. What's going on? The gospel of John is an invitation. This is a first date. And it's a first date of all first dates. It starts with a wedding at Cana. Let's keep reading. Uh, so in verse two, G, or verse one, Jesus's mother was there. In first century culture, the groom and his family was responsible uh, for the financial and, you know, arrangements of the wedding. And the groom's mother stood in place as sort of like an event coordinator. This still happens today, by the way. So, for example, uh, the day of my wedding, um, you know, my wife's parents, they immigrated to the United States from China, and my mother, my future mother-in-law, pulls me aside and says, Craig, you know, in, uh, in my culture, it's the groom who's responsible for this day. I was like, why are you telling me that now? She goes, but I'm going to let you off the hook on this one. I was like, oh, whoo, okay. So this still happens today. So the, the groom's mom plays a very important role of overseeing and running things. And we see that because when they run out of wine, who's worried about it? Mary. And she comes to Jesus, and John is pointing out, hey, look, this isn't, there's something else going on here. Because Jesus is like, what does this have to do with me? And John's like, ah, it's like a wink. See? There's more going on here than what it looks like. How does, so what happens? They run out of wine. It's the groom's responsibility to care for that. So the, the groom does something. There's six jars. He fills them with water, turns water into wine. Like, what? Like, I remember when I was a kid, someone said, like, uh, I was in a Sunday school class with my friend Sean. They're like, Sean, what does it mean to be a Christian? And they're like, you have to believe Jesus was the best magician around. And I was like, Sean, don't just keep that to yourself, buddy, right? Like, why does Jesus turn water into wine? It's deeply symbolic. In the Old Testament, wine was the symbol of the new creation, is a sign that something new, God is doing something new. In Isaiah chapter 2, remember God plants a vineyard and the grapes are rotten. By the end of Isaiah, though, there's new wine flowing. Why? God's redeeming creation. So what's Jesus saying on this first date? I'm making all things new. I've come for my broken creation. I'm not abandoning it. I'm coming to make all things new. He's building trust. He's saying, hey, I'm going to make this creation new. I can make you new. And what's the response? What's the response? Look with me again at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. In our context, brides reveal their glory. Right? There's like a John Foreman song that was like, better dressed than any girl on her wedding day. Right? Like, you know, we all, this, and rightly so, the ceremony stops, everybody looks, and there's the bride coming down. It's like a really wild moment. 
That was not so in the first century. Think the Scarlet Pimpernel, right? Think of like just the fanciest guy you've ever seen. The groom comes walking down. And and reveals his glory. Jesus reveals his glory as a groom. I'm here to make everything new. This is the type of husband I'm going to be. And how do the disciples respond? They believed in him. John, who uses this word believe 96 times, is not saying, they're like, oh yeah, we trust who you say you are. No. This phrase is also used in weddings for when the bride pledges their fidelity to the groom. That's where the word faith comes from. Sola fide, that's one of the battle cries of the Reformation, faith alone. Fide, fidelity. I'm pledging... We are, you have our allegiance, Jesus. And 21 chapters later, there's a bump, in, there's a lot of bumps in the road. This is the first date. You're like, Craig, I've never heard this before. That's insane. I don't believe you. It's fine. But if you don't take my word for it, we're going to LeVar Burton you with John the Baptist. John the Baptist explicitly states this in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 29 through 30, here's what John the Baptist said. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Why is he talking about a wedding? Because there's just a wedding in Cana. The friend, that's him, who attends the bridegroom, waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. Why is that joy his? He hears the bridegroom's voice. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. That's an ex- that, that he is explicitly quoting from several Old Testament passages, but most importantly, Jeremiah 33, who says Israel will abandon God, but like a bridegroom, he's going to chase after her, he's going to sing over her with joy, and he's going to marry her. That's Isaiah says that, Ezekiel says that, Hosea really leans into that marriage analogy. Paul straight up says that in Ephesians chapter 5, when he says that Christ is the head of the church Because the church is his bride. The author of Revelation says it not once, not twice, but three times. History is going to end with the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. This was central to following Jesus. This is a spiritual marriage. And here's what John's getting at. When somebody works to build trust, that deserves a response. When somebody works to build trust, it is rude to not respond. Your your response may not be like, I totally trust you. I'm all in. But to not respond is to rude, to, to be rude. Here you go. How about this? I went to college. You're either following Jesus or you're not following Jesus. You're either following Jesus or you're not following Jesus. You either have given him your allegiance or you're playing church. You either trust him or you don't. And the invitation here is just, just be honest. You're like, I don't trust him yet. Okay, well, what response are you going to get at? Are you going to say, I don't trust you. Here's why I don't trust you. Help. Or are you going to be like, I don't trust you and it's not worth my time. I got other things. Now, I know, I know. I sat in church. I've sat where you sit. I know as soon as I say that, like three of you are like, ah, holy cow, am I trusting Jesus? Do I have a leader? Do I trust him enough? Ah. If, that, if you're like crazy anxious right now, like if you're like a three and you're like a seven, you're probably trusting Jesus. 
The heart that doesn't trust Jesus, the heart that's not believing Jesus is like, whatever. Apathetic. Apathy is a decision. Marriage changes things, though. Changes everything. I learned this the hard way. When Amy and I first got married, I learned just how different we really are. So I came from a family where if someone says, hey, would you like a free? The answer is yes. We'll figure out later if it's good or useful or what. But if you, someone says, do you want a free? It's like, heck yeah. So Amy and I had just gotten married. It's the early teens. I think that's what they call them, right? The teens, the decade, the last decade, the teens. It's the early teens, right? And a friend of ours said, hey, I have a TV in storage. You guys just got married. You want a free TV? Definitely. Uh, it's really big. Definitely, definitely. Okay? And I'm, I, don't, I just got married. I didn't think to ask, right? I'm like, yeah, why would you, it's a free TV. Why would she not want that? She said, it's really big. I'm like, great. Now, here's the problem with this. You're thinking about really big TV from like 2023, okay? Which is like, if you have space on your wall, you have space for a big TV, right? They're like this thick, and just however big your wall is, you can put a big TV on there. Again, so this is the early teens, meaning someone gave us a free TV, meaning it was not new. So at best, it's like early aughts. Is that that decade? Uh, this was not that, though. This was like probably late 80s, okay? So a big TV from the late 80s, this TV was, I'm not exaggerating, it was about four feet tall, it was about four feet wide, and three feet deep, okay? We lived in a tiny little apartment, okay? Our entire apartment became the TV room, all right? We lived on the second story, there was this, like, a, our living room had a sliding glass door right there, and there was this, like, struggling actor that lived across the way, and he smoked all the time, and I just remember, every time we'd watch a movie, we, we, just nicotine would... Oh, man. And, he, and I'm not making this up. Sometimes he'd even be like, hey, can you guys turn that up? And it's like, sure. Right? Needless to say, that wasn't as joyful for my wife as it was for me. Why? Because we got married, and in marriage, my life and my decisions impact another and her life and her decisions impact another. It's not an accident that Jesus is saying, let's get married. When Amy married me, she got all my bad, and I got all her good. When Jesus marries you, he takes all your bad, and he gives you all his good. Jesus revealed his glory. And the disciples said, yes. The invitation to believe in Jesus is so much richer and so much better than all benefits, no commitment. And it's so much more beautiful than the fear of, have I done enough? It's a beautiful union of someone who is all good and all love. And as John the Baptist tells us, all joy. And he says, you're mine. I want you. Come. Let's make this official. In the first century, marriage was different than it is today. 
there was a process called betrothal. We don't do betrothal today, so it's kind of foreign to us, but they did betrothal back then. What's betrothal? It's a period before marriage, similar to engagement. However, legally, you're married. So if someone is unfaithful, they're held accountable to the law as an adulterer. So if, if somebody uh, in this marriage arrangement is like, hey, we're betrothed, never mind, you have to get divorced. And it's just like a divorce. Now again, everything I'm about to describe, please keep in mind, I do not make the rules. I did not make those rules. I wasn't around. I'm not saying God made these rules. This was like the culture in which these people found themselves. Here are some of the cultural practices they did. So when people got married back then, it wasn't just about two individuals like, we're in love. This is great. Let's get married. Boom. It was about families, right? There was no social safety net, so people wanted to have lots of kids. And so then when marriage happened, two families came together. It was like, woohoo, bigger social safety net. So the father of the bride, who was said to be the head of the household, would work really hard to find a suitable groom for his bride. So he, when he found a groom who he's like, yep, they went to the right schools, they've got enough money, here we go, we're good. The father of the bride would bring the bride to the family of the groom, and the family of the groom would bring the groom, okay? And they would work out a price for the bride, right? Again, I don't make the rules, all right? And I'm not saying God is like, yeah, this is great. All right, it was about 50 shekels for like a, a, like a top-notch bride. Like, how much money is that? I don't know, it's like a new Tesla, let's just say, okay? And so you've got the situation where you are like, hey, let's negotiate the price. New Tesla, yeah, okay, great. Use Tesla, no, new Tesla, okay, cool. And so what happens at this point is that the groom's family is like, here is the 50 shekels for that bride, okay? At which point, a glass of wine is poured and the wine cup is given to the bride saying, do you want to enter into a covenant with this family? Do you want to make this happen? The bride says, heck yeah, and she drinks the cup of wine. Okay? Does that sound familiar? It's communion. Communion is an event where we are pledging our allegiance to Jesus. We are just recommitting the vow. Yes, I'll marry him again. Okay, it gets real cool though. At this point, the groom says, got it. Here's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to leave and I'm going to go prepare a place for you. John chapter 14. Jesus says to his disciples, why are your hearts troubled? Why are you depressed? You believe you've given your allegiance to God. Give your allegiance to me too. And he says, like, if I go away, I come back. Thomas says, where are you going? I don't know where you're going. How are you going to, are going to get there? He says, I'm the way. I'm the truth and the life. Then he goes on to say this, though. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back again. It's all trust building. Jesus is saying this. Will you marry me? I am a trustworthy groom. John uses the word believe 96 times. So much of it's negative because Jesus makes, goes on this first date and they go out into a broken world where not a lot of people believe. John sets this up in chapter one. and says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And there's so many times where Jesus and he's like, hey, here I am. Do you trust me? And they're like, no way. And so we see the disciples try with their willpower. There's this character who's great. He's running the background this whole book. 
And he's in, like the, he's in the Lordship Salvation Camp. He's like, Jesus, I'm going to believe in you with everything I got. His name's Peter. He's like, I got willpower. I got this. I believe in you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, actually, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter goes, heck, no, I'm not. I believe in you. I'm going to make this marriage work. What happens? He denies him three times, and at the end of the book, we're on the beach, and Jesus is like, do you love me? Then follow me. You may be sitting here this morning going, where am I with Jesus? Am I following him? Do I love him? How, how do I know? Where am I at? Do you love me? Without love, we see little transformation. Don't focus on, will you take care of mom when she gets dementia? What are you going to do when your spouse comes home and they're no fun and they're interested in other people and they're not interested in you? Don't, don't start there. That just is the downward. Focus on like being with your spouse, listening, talking, being attentive to. Do you love him? Do you love him? Because here's the good news, what John the Baptist is saying. He loves you. For God so loved that he gave his only son so that whoever pledges their fidelity, whoever says yes to this marriage proposal, shall not perish but have everlasting life. We don't get there through willpower. John 1, 11 through 12. Those who are born are not born by the will of man. I gotta try. We're born again by and through love. As important as asking, do you love him, is does he love me? And John the Baptist is saying he rejoices over his bride with joy. And we're like, I've been married. That's not how it went. We'll see about that. That's why this book is 21 chapters, and I'm encouraging you not to miss a week. Because your doubts will get wrestled with. Jesus is saying, let's go. Let's be honest. Can you trust me? Let's find out. Jesus, Marriage is hard. Commitment is scary. God, I pray whatever the next step is for us, whether that's saying yes for the first time or saying yes today. God, whatever the fear that is there, would you speak into that fear? God, just like you calmed the raging storm, will you calm the raging storm that's inside of us when this invitation is given and it stirs up all kinds of doubt and fear and concern? Will you remind us that you rejoice over your bride with singing? Ask all these things. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.